Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. In the modern movie business, the idea of a successful standalone film is an abomination. The whole point of the movies these days is to repeat success as often and for as long as possible. Most producers are planning their sequels long before the shooting is complete on the film they're currently making. But some films are easier to follow up than others. Look, the shield is the second mark we found. Indiana Jones is on the quest of a lifetime. If your film is an adventure yarn in which Indiana Jones or James Bond or Jack Reacher go in search of something and run into bad guys along the way, it's simply a case of repeating the formula and making sure that nothing too permanent happens to your hero, especially a permanent girlfriend. Ravishing redheads. Bronze brunettes. Honey blondes. The Bond Women 007 style. But now, even something well and truly completed, you'd think, is no longer immune from being resuscitated. So long as the same faces pop up and the same plot points are repeated, who's going to complain that the reheated souffle is a little tasteless? (laughs) Hamlet 2? Doesn't everybody die at the end of the first one? I have a device. The time machine opens, revealing Hamlet and... Jesus! Good luck. Thanks, Jesus. You got my cell number? Yeah. Okay. Of course, not all sequels are ridiculous rip-offs. That's crazy talk. That would mean most big-budget films right now aren't worth making, let alone buying tickets for. Maybe the don't-be-ashamed-of-a-sequel era began with a little film called The Godfather Part 2. My father taught me many things. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies close. To its many credits, it won six Oscars, for goodness sake, with the fact that much of The Godfather Part Two was the parts of the original book that Francis Ford Coppola couldn't fit into the first film. And it was clever that it was half-sequel, what happened when Michael Corleone took over the crime family, and half-prequel, the inexorable rise of his father, Vito Corleone. You asked me once if I had told you everything there was to know about my adventures. Well, I can honestly say I have told you the truth. I may not have told you all of it. Ah, prequels. How often have they saved a producer's bacon after a successful film short-sightedly killed off everyone bankable? There have been prequels to Lord of the Rings. Indeed, there's a huge TV series coming up that's a prequel to The Hobbit prequels. There have been prequels to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Peter Pan, The Wizard of Oz, Black Widow, mostly with one thing in common. They didn't work at all. 
Where are you going? Looks like I'm going nowhere. I have to go finish cleaning those droids. Oh, and he can't stay here forever. Most of his friends have gone. Luke's just not a farmer, Owen. He has too much of his father in him. That's what I'm afraid of. To find out why, you've got to remember how a big popular story works. It opens on our hero and or heroine at a low ebb. There's nothing going on in their lives. Then something happens. And then more stuff happens and they meet interesting people. And it all gets very exciting until the end. May the Force be with you. 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 Goodbye, friend. May the Force be with you. And at the end, our lead character finds love, or makes their fortune, or gets a job, or even dies heroically. But no matter how you phrase it, that's the end. Shane's not coming back. So where does an ending like that leave the would-be sequel writer? If Shane comes back and sorts out another problem, you've essentially trashed the original story. But equally, if you try and tack on another story before the start, you know, a prequel, that's not going anywhere interesting either. (laughs) So life in the Shire goes on, very much as it has this past age, full of its own comings and goings, with change coming slowly if it comes at all. Remember how the original hit opened, our lead character with nothing going on in their life. was hardly a satisfying punchline for your expensive new prequel. But like it or not, we're living in a world of endless extra chapters, whether the original story will sustain them or not. Wherever we go, this family... Our fortress. Currently, billions of dollars are being spent on laborious add ons to Avatar, Lord of the Rings, Jurassic World, the TV series Game of Thrones, and of course, the endless Marvel Universe. These hands were once used for battle. Now they're but humble tools for peace. I need to figure out. Exactly who I am. Right now, there are not one but six sequels to Marvel's various titles in various stages of post-production, not to mention the ones still on the drawing board. Much as we like spending time with old favourites, have we forgotten the pleasures of discovering new ones? Who are you? Star-Lord. Who? Star-Lord, man. Legendary outlaw. Well, okay. just because a story stands alone is no guarantee of a timeless classic. This week, three one-offs, including a slight tale from Scotland called Nobody Has to Know, and from France, Haute Couture, the unlikely tale of a street kid who's invited to become a Dior dressmaker. But first, a remake of an unlikely but true story of World War II, Operation Mincemeat. Allied forces have landed. Limited casualties. Enemy retreating. 
After the war, the cinemas were filled with simple action movies featuring famous achievements of the armed forces. But then later stories started to come out from behind the scenes. Secret agents, code breakers, double and triple crosses. Spy stories arrived, popularised by Ian Fleming's James Bond, and never really went away. One of the first and least likely featured Fleming himself in a minor role. It's the most outrageous, disgusting, preposterous, not to say barbaric idea. The strangest spy story in the annals of naval intelligence. The story of how a bizarre British plan to send the German troops to completely the wrong place had already been told in a 1956 movie called The Man Who Never Was. What the new version, with the slightly more mundane title Operation Mincemeat, has over its predecessor is over 50 years, in which previously top-secret information has come to light. In stories of war, there is that which is seen and that which is hidden. In God's name, Fleming, what are you writing? Spy story. It also benefits from director John Madden, back to his Shakespeare in Love standard after some fairly ho-hum efforts at the best exotic Marigold Hotel. The story opens on Ewan Montague, a Whitehall desk jockey, given the impossible task of making Sicily seem an unlikely jumping-off spot to attack Italy. In five weeks, 100,000 British forces will strike Sicily's southern shore. Unfortunately, the Nazis know of our intentions. So we're going to play a humiliating trick on Hitler. <laughs> He's actually got a plan, or rather an over-imaginative underling has come up with a plan, that underling being one Fleming I. So with Fleming and another odd Whitehall bod called Charles Chumley, these names, Montague sets to work to invent a dead secret agent who happens to land in the lap of the Nazis. We have to convince Germany that our target is Greece. The plan begins in Spain, where a corpse will wash up on shore bearing classified letters. A corpse carrying fake documents. If there's one thing John Madden has always been good at, it's casting. Colin Firth plays leader Montague, Matthew McFadgen is a terrific foil as Charles, playing Fleming is star-in-waiting Johnny Flynn. Jason Isaac plays their remote boss, nicknamed M. See what they did there? Well, this time, Winston Churchill is played by stage star Simon Russell Beale. Given the fascist network there, we could quite literally float the documents right into enemy hands. Prime Minister, that's too big a risk. The fate of the world is at stake. The plan is highly implausible. So when can it be ready? From the start, Operation Mincemeat is partly about playing with the usual clichés of the wartime genre, a la Shakespearean love, and partly showing how fiendishly difficult this seemingly simple practical joke actually is. What say we start with the easy part and find ourselves a corpse? The thing is, the Germans will scrutinise every detail of our fallen man. Where are his legs? Their fictional dead secret agent, now named William Martin, has to be given a credible backstory and a reason for doing what he's doing. Well, the answer to both is a girlfriend, provided by another of the team, Jean Leslie, played by Kelly MacDonald. He must be as real as you or I. He would carry a letter from his wife professing her deep love for him. Very good. 
And he would carry her photograph. My contribution to the mission for a seat at the table. And once Jean joins the team, the plot thickens. More than one plot, really. Not only is the tale of William Martin given depth, even romance, so is that of Ewan, Charles and Jean. You can't work that close on such an intimate task. They all take turns writing believable love letters between William and his girlfriend Pam without feelings becoming heated. Although, what if the autopsy reveals he didn't die of drowning? Or if the briefcase is returned to us without the Germans seeing its contents. Charles, why on earth do you keep poking holes in our plan? I'm preemptively poking. Aside from plotting the fictional spy's love life, there's the question of making sure the briefcase found on the late double O William Martin reaches the Nazi high command. As a location, Spain is uniquely suited for this. It may be nominally neutral, but dictator Franco is famously Nazi-friendly. Success depends on guiding the papers into Hitler's hands. The nightmare marching this way is only too real. And the Spanish won't let the Germans anywhere near our briefcase. We are in the dark. In this world of bluff and double bluff, the British had to look desperate to keep these secret papers away from Nazi prying eyes. Meanwhile, the Germans had to look as if they hadn't seen the secret papers, and neither side had any way of knowing what the other side knew. No wonder Ian Fleming had such a lovely war. In the hidden war, the truth is protected by a bodyguard of lies. Its soldiers unseen pray. It's heroes unsung. The power of Operation Mincemeat is in the fact that, ridiculous and unbelievable as this story is, it's almost entirely true. There's new information that suggests that there may very well have been anti-Hitler forces inside Germany, greasing the pole along which this disinformation was sliding. If the enemy is waiting for us on those beaches, history herself will avert our eyes from the slaughter. I may vomit. I may vomit with you. And another point made lightly but firmly was that the stakes had never been higher. Yes, it's all a very long time ago now, but the events of Operation Mincemeat and the intelligence climate it helped start not only turned the tide of the war, but shaped Europe for the next 80 years. This is our war. The French pride themselves on their civilization and sophistication. Possibly this is why so many of their films are set in the world of the arts, music, theatre, food and fashion. Haute Couture takes place in the House of Dior. Allez, mesdames, on met du cœur à l'ouvrage. Ça va, Esther? Vous avez l'air tout ému. Well, my knowledge of the world of haute couture is essentially limited, but it seems our heroine Esther, played by veteran star Natalie Bay, runs the Dior dressmaking workshop. She's about to retire, or rather be retired. This is to be her last collection. And to make matters worse, she's just had her handbag snatched at the metro. I'm going to sac ce dans le metro. C'est pas vrai? La meuf, c'est Madame Dior. Non, mais tu devrais lui rendre le sac, là. The handbag snatchers are a couple of immigrant street kids called Jade and Suad. 
but seeing that the bag is full of sketches of Dior dresses, Jade panics and decides to return them. She may be a street kid, but she's also Parisian. Esther is taken by Jade, in particular Jade's dressmaking hands. These hands could create beauty, she says. Leaving aside the total implausibility of this plot shortcut, just go with it, OK? Esther invites Jade to be an intern at Dior. The workshop cynic André sniffs. If she comes in tomorrow, I'll shout everyone croissant, she says. But what do you know? Suffice to say, the croissants are on André and Jade starts to learn the way of the Dior workshop with Esther, a slightly impatient French Yoda. André, je crois que tu peux passer à la boulangerie. Monsieur Dior disait, une robe, ça se construit comme un immeuble. Touche ou tu sens le tissu. Tu peux faire des belles choses. Je fais ce que je veux. Jade learns about fabrics and how to cut things and, well, you know, haute couture stuff. But of course, you can take the kid out of the streets, but you can't take the street out of the kid. Jade and Esther regularly butt heads. Ça vous fait rien de coudre des robes qui valent un bras, de venir bosser le samedi, tout ça pour être payé une misère C'est pas ça qui compte. Ce que tu es en train d'apprendre, c'est un métier, un métier que tu pourras transmettre. C'est ça la vraie richesse. This is a whole new world for Jade, having to turn up on time, having to work through the weekend sometimes, and it's not as if the pay reflects the hours. Why are we working seven days a week on wildly expensive items but still being paid slave wages, she asks. Depuis que vous êtes arrivé dans ma vie, j'ai tout lâché. Vous vous prenez pour ma mère parce que vous êtes seule. J'ai rencontré une gamine. Esther barely understands the question. For her, learning the craft and passing it on, that's everything. But there's a price to pay for learning that craft for both Esther and Jade. Esther finds herself repeating the attitudes of her own mother, another company loyalist who put the house of Dior before her own family. Meanwhile, Jade is fending off criticism from her old street friends. What do you owe these people, they ask. In some ways, it's to sir with love with frocks and with a madam instead of sir. And while newcomer writer-director Sylvie Oyon is hardly breaking new ground with haute couture, essentially a tale of rag trade to emotional riches, it's very sweet with its heart and scissors firmly in the right place. The star of a Belgian-Scottish co-production called Nobody Has to Know is Michelle Fairley of Game of Thrones fame and the owner of one of the most expressive faces in Ulster. Here she plays Millie, the middle-aged daughter of a farmer on a Scottish island. One day, one of Dad's farm workers, the Belgian Philippe, has an unexpected stroke. Hello, this is Rakemore Hospital. Yes. Just calling to let you know that Philip Hobbit has been released. When? Last night.
Millie was meant to pick him up from the hospital, so she pops around to make sure he's all right, only to discover that one of the side effects of Phil's stroke is a total loss of memory. Incidentally, Phil is played by one Bully Lunas. You may not have heard of him, but he's very big in Belgium. He's also the writer-director of Nobody Has to Know. I'm so sorry the hospital forgot to ring me. <laughs> Excuse me, who are you? No, we knew each other before your stroke. You work on my father's farm. Phil doesn't quite look dazed at the camera and say, who am I, but it's touch and go. Millie looks hurt that he's completely forgotten her. Phil is apologetic, then goes back to work on the family farm. Millie's nephew, Brian, thinks it's funny. There are several Jason Bourne jokes and optimistic references to forgotten loans. You haven't forgotten about that £200 you owe me. Right. That's enough. Why do I live on this island? You have a tattoo of Scotland on your right arm. What else did I forget? But Phil is now intrigued by Millie and how much she seems to know about him, particularly his many tattoos. Was there more to their relationship than merely Belgian farm labourer and Scottish farmer's daughter? Go on, have a guess. We were together... Like a couple. We were lovers. Don't mention this to anyone. When it comes out, it's hardly a shock, nor is it totally unexpected when the two decide to pick up where they left off. OK, Phil can't remember exactly where they left off, but Millie seems willing to fill in the blanks. But why is she so anxious that, as the title puts it, nobody has to know? Why the secrecy, wonders Phil? Is it because her family is so religious? I've lied to Phil, just so that I could be with him. What will you do when he finds out? Why can nobody know about us? When the belated twist in the plot comes about, it's so heavily telegraphed that it barely qualifies as a twist at all. It's only Michelle Fairley's yearning eyes that make us keen on a happy ending. Well, I say happy ending. Phil, particularly stripped to the waist with all his tattoos on display, is clearly an acquired taste. But, as I say, actor Bully Lannis is very big in Belgium. And it seems Phil has his own secrets too. It's really cool! Do I have any other family? I have a brother. I'm going to go to the hospital for you to come back. You can't disappear like that every time. A long-estranged brother from Belgium arrives and urges Philippe to come clean. Meanwhile, Millie is tossing up whether to do the same thing. Can the truth set them free, we're invited to wonder, or would it simply drive them mad? Is it enough that the two are happy now, so why rock the boat? What the hell is wrong with you? First time in a long time, there's nothing wrong with me. Nobody has to know has that slightly bleak rural atmosphere that certain Scottish and Belgian films share with certain New Zealand ones. The plot's nothing much to write about and the characters are barely drawn at all, apart from Millie, thanks to Michelle Fairley's performance. Bully Lunnis may not do much in the way of writing, acting or directing, but he certainly cast his co-star well. No need for a sequel, though, as we come to the end of today's show. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.